While the kids from the 1980s D&D cartoon didn't originally go to the Forgotten Realms, the cartoon debuted four years before the first Forgotten Realms box set was published, the kids have been portrayed as living out their D&D fantasy in Faerun in various media. In 1996, TSR published The Forgotten Realms, the Grand Tour comic book which featured Presto trying to apprentice himself to Elminster. Baldur's Gate 2 contains a brief reference to Hank and Bobby being eaten by Tiamat. Hmm, I uh, guess the kids learned about resurrection spells before this movie came out. Good for them. And now we present to you Thaco with Advantage. Welcome to Thaco. <coughs> sorry, sorry. Welcome to Thaco with Advantage. We're all friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we have lots of love for other RPGs, D&D is a mass media property that hooks us even when we aren't gaming. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And in 2021, I became head gnome. And I am Jared. I'm the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew... I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. And wait, wait, is this someone else here? Yes, by the way, you should all go and read the Gnome Stew and also read whatdoiknowjr.com. I am Chris. <laughs> I am the creator of Misdirected Mark Productions. I've been gaming since 1989 and have hosted, edited, or produced between 1,300 and 1,500 podcasts in the past 10 to 12 years. The majority of them have been about tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, honestly, if it weren't for Chris, this podcast would not be out there, because he's the one editing <laughs> it, so be nice to him. <laughs> All right, why don't we talk about the format and the topic, Ange? So, you may have noticed we have a guest today. Well, he's not actually a guest, he's the disembodied voice you hear between segments, and our amazing editor, Chris. Get on with your downtime research. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, and then we'll be talking about the D&D movie, Honor Among Thieves. Yes! <laughs> no spoilers. Not yet. There will Not be yet. spoilers, there will but be we're going to have a section without spoilers, so we'll get there. <laughs> so we're going to do that. We're all very excited about it, as you can tell. And then we'll have some D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. First, our campaign journal. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. So in my last session, uh, they began investigating the Cloister of Vlorok, a ruin from the ancient giant empire that had become more dangerous in recent times. They were told of this place by Efrendau, an older drow that Sax knew from his past that they met when they hooked up with the clan of drow that, you know, we've talked about in previous sessions. Now, they set off for the thing and were traveling along their way and they camped for the night and I rolled for a random encounter and sure enough, one came up while they were camping. Uh, it happened during the fourth watch, which was when Rena the Sorcerer and Sax the Cleric were taking their turn. They heard something large flying overhead and Sax made a survival roll to realize that whatever it was, it was hunting. Now... <laughs> If they had just kept quiet, maybe covered the remains of their campfire a little bit, I would have just had it pass by them. But Rena, in all of her infinite wisdom, decided to wake up the rest of the party by using an illusion spell to create a great noise. <laughs> and this did have the effect she desired. It woke up the rest of the party. It 
also attracted the attention of the young black dragon that was flying overhead <laughs> hunting for dinner. And when he came to investigate what was going on, he noticed the very juicy horse uh, <laughs> that was Fiannon, Vandreth's companion. Oh no, not the special horse. The special horse. The special <laughs> telepathic horse that is smarter than her paladin. I hear special horses like that are tasty. <laughs> That's what the dragon thought. Uh, so the, dra the dragon came in to attack. Um, it got one good blast of its breath weapon and pretty much took Sax out in one go. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, crap, we're screwed. Luckily, Sax rolled a uh, 20 on his first death save, which means he kind of pops back up with one hit point, which we all had fun kind of role-playing what that must have looked like, you know, as he gets knocked out by the Black Dragon's breath, and then all of a sudden it's like, <gasps> all of a sudden back on his feet. And honestly, the, 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 the fight was, it was easy. You know, <laughs> this was definitely something they could handle, even if it gave them a scare when it came in. Um, the dragon tried to run away, but they weren't about to let it go. For some reason, they're always afraid that if if something runs away, it's going to bring back friends, which I suppose <laughs> is a, a reasonable concern, but is usually not anything even remotely close to what I'm thinking at the time. I know a lot of players that have that problem. Like, if we let it go, it's coming back later. Yep. We know it. <laughs> After they took down the dragon, made sure it was really, really, truly dead, they gave Rena a whole bunch of grief about her method of awaking the party. Uh, and then they set off on their way. I mean, they, they draw aggro spell. <laughs> they draw aggro spell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very much what that was. Attract aggro. <laughs> so when they got to the area of the cloister of Lorak, I described them seeing it on the rise of the next hill over this ruined tower. Um, so they knew where it was and they started approaching and they came across the first defenses outside in kind of a clearing. It was a giant statue that as they got closer, it animated. Uh, but it wasn't just a statue. What it was was it was a, an ancient version of a Warforged Titan. Ooh. Essentially, mechanically, <laughs> it was just a Warforged Titan that I described as being an older, ancient version of it. But as it was damaged, the souls that were powering it would come up out and be another antagonist they had to deal with this was thanks to jared <laughs> i don't know if jared ever actually wants to meet some of my players considering some of the stuff he has recommended to me <laughs> but the idea was is that because three allops and the titan warforge would be a little too much for them the way this worked is that when the the titan was at 75 percent of its health one would come out and then 50 percent another one would come out but if the first one wasn't gone it would go away it would basically dissipate because another one has emerged. As it turns out, the first one got to act once. The second one did not get to act because they were basically like kind of freaking out about the Warforged and just piling everything they could <laughs> on top of it. So the second one popped out and before it could do anything, the third one popped out. When the third one came up, uh, it did get to cast its Whisper of Madness ability which basically hits a bunch of people and can make them attack anyone the Allop chooses. Well, I got thinking about this and I'm like, out of everyone that is here, who does the Allop hate the most? <laughs> the Warforged that it was imprisoned in for the last 
several thousand millennia. That makes sense. And so the players were all a little confused because they're like, wait, it's making me make an attack against the Warforged? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it is. So they they basically took it out. They moved on up closer to the tower where they could actually see some of the ruins were moving on it. And here's where I got to have a little fun as a GM because most of the battle mats to be used in VTTs are not sized <laughs> for giants. They're sized for medium-sized creatures. So I basically got to have some fun searching for maps without grids that I could then size <laughs> to be five feet equal 15 feet instead so that it worked for giants, which of course meant these battle maps were huge. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. This is when you got to have fun? The, the Warforged Titan with Aleps like <laughs> emanating from it as like terrible <laughs> vengeance spirits wasn't fun? Like, I'm confused now. <laughs> fun comes in different flavors and sizes. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> this was the fun I got to have with prep. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when, you know, I got to have fun in the prep and basically finding the right maps that I could resize to like be like, no, no, this stairwell is not five feet wide. This stairwell is 15 <laughs> feet wide because it's used to a huge creature going up and down them. So just outside of the tower, the ruined tower, they got to fight some living spells, which is something I've always loved from Eberron. They're very well known mm. in the Mornland, but I figured they'd also be in Zendrik because Zendrik is kind of the precursor to what happened in the Mornland. So they got to fight two living burning hands one living lightning bolt, and a living cloud kill. Luckily for them, because the map was so big, this was a very staged fight. Like, they took out the burning hands pretty quickly because they were the smallest of the ones. Then they fought the lightning bolt, and then they realized this giant cloud kill thing was coming at them. <laughs> there was a couple of things, like the map was so big that Perrin thought it would be good to run up around into the tower to come behind the cloud kill, but by the time he got to the entrance... To the Ruined Tower, they'd already dealt with the Cloud Kill. <laughs> they ended up deciding after that fight to take a short rest before heading in to the uh, the tower, and that's where we ended the session for the night to pick up in our next session. I, I like the tactic of sneaking up on... Sentient Cloud. <laughs> yeah. I'm a terrible person. I'm just thinking like, hmm, I guess I'll have the Cloud Kill envelop somebody and then have the Burning Hands at the Cloud Kill to ignite the Cloud Kill. <laughs> You know, that, that would have been interesting <laughs> if the Burning Hands had lost, lasted longer than a round. Absolutely. Your party's <laughs> overpowered. That's fine. I don't even know that it's, they're overpowered because when we got to the next session, which I've actually already played at this point, but I need to save for our next episode. <laughs> there were some choices I made that were like, oh, I could have really wiped this party out. They are powerful. They probably have too many magic items because I like giving treasure. But they are also really smart players. They are tactically sound. You gotta teach the teach those players a lesson. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, you wanna tell us about yours? All right. So when we last left our group of adventurers, they had just finished their first fight in Valhalla. They are on a quest, um, a a personal quest for one of the players, um, the Divine and Soul Sorcerer Ivy. She is an SMR, and her ancestor, the Valkyrie, has been imprisoned. And they are trying to get a legal document filled out to get her released from the uh, Prison of Eternal Torment. So the first step is to get her sister to talk about how awesome she is in Valhalla in order to show that, you know, she needs to be freed. But before they can do that, they have to weather a whole day on the fields of Valhalla. Now, 
the way I have this staged, I built a medium, a hard, and a deadly fight. And basically we had the morning, you know, midday and afternoon battles. And I did a deadly fight because it's Valhalla. And I'm not worried about killing them. And I know that normally I would not advocate that phrase coming from a DM. But <laughs> when you have someone on a plane where people naturally resurrect, I think it's sad if you don't kill someone. <laughs> they went through last session. They went through the medium fight like nothing. They got a short rest. And then we got to our second fight, which was the hard one, which was basically a bard, two werebearers, and a whole bunch of minions from the Flea Mortals uh, playtest from MCDM. Oh, that means that one hit point. Yep. The neat thing about um, this particular type of minion is that each one that is adjacent to someone slows their speed by 10. And if they reach zero, then they are restrained. So there is a secondary function for them, even though they go down easy and they don't do a whole lot of damage. They also can cause problems for, you know, making the person much more vulnerable to other attacks. In that fight, they did bog down our Cyanite Marin. And, but it didn't last too long because they're minions. And for one thing, Ivy likes to blow up large areas of uh, <laughs> of terrain as a divine soul sorcerer. Feels good. Yeah. I mean, if you've got fireball, you want to use fireball. But one of the things that was um, kind of fun for me, speaking of the prep phase and what's fun, is I created layer actions for the battlefield in Valhalla. So on initiative count 20... For the first round, everyone had to make a wisdom save or else they attack recklessly. So no one could cast spells, no one could concentrate on spells. You're at advantage to attack, but your opponents are at advantage to hit you. That was the first layer action. The second layer action is anyone that is below 50% of their hit points but still up resets to 50% of their hit points because they get a surge of vitality. We would have, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. But <laughs> that hurt us so bad at the end. The third layer action that triggers is that any hit is a critical hit. Oh, okay. That was nice. I liked that. I, well, I was hoping this all kind of felt like it would make sense for the battlefield in Valhalla where you're just constantly practicing these battles for all eternity. So the middle fight didn't go too badly for the PCs. Um, the werebears were fun. The werebears were fun. The bard didn't last too long because Marin got upset because she uh, had <laughs> she used the the particular bard stat block gave him like disadvantage on everything, and he decided he wasn't going to deal with that. So once the minions were gone, he skewered the bard rather quickly. But the two werebears lasted for a while, and I liked the fact that the werebears got to have some camaraderie and chats with the people that they were trying to murder because it's the fields of Valhalla and it's okay. Like, watch this. I'm going to try and take your arm off. Is uh, one of them hit Kazina with some damage, at which point I did hellish rebuke back at him and he was like, oh, spicy. <laughs> <laughs> so then we came up to the deadly fight. And in the deadly fight, I also had a ton of uh, minions. We had three paladins and... And here you are, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but <laughs> basically the honored dead of Valhalla that have been ascended. The Einherjarin? Okay, that's entirely possible. That I only know that that's a pronunciation because it comes up in the Dresden Files audiobook all the time. And <laughs> I've heard James Marster say it repeatedly. So that's why I know it's Einherjarin. What's really funny about that is that Ivy's go-to move is um, Spirit Guardians. So that, you know, she has the swirling uh, area of death that, you know, people get stuck in and it just cuts them to shreds. And um, the, the Einjar... Einjar... Einjar Jarin. The Einjar Yes. 
Uh, I'll just let Chris pronounce this for me. (laughs) (laughs) But they also have spirit guardians, which upset her a little bit because he stole her her trick. (laughs) So did like the spirit guardians start fighting each other? Because they should have like that. (laughs) Well, she hadn't got a chance to summon hers yet. So that was another thing that bothered her there. Once again, the minions went down very quickly because Ivy had a kobold press spell from deep magic that has the most ridiculous range on it or area effect that I've seen outside of meteor swarm. <laughs> and it was basically completely mauled all of the uh, minions that were on the field. Yeah. The minions were absolutely not a factor in the third fight. <laughs> not in that fight. No, but I, I think the paladins were worse than the other combatant just because the paladins had enough spell slots that they could keep smiting and it hurt a lot of the people in the fight. <laughs> We came close. We came really, really close to, you know, at least finishing the fight without losing everybody. <laughs> and then the lair action gave them all their health back. The the 50% uh, vitality surge definitely helped the uh, paladins a lot more than the adventurers in that case. Sounds like a well-constructed lair action. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. Essentially, this is what I said through the whole thing. This was so they had a good story to tell at the feast. At the end of the uh, at the end of the battle, they took out two of the paladins, I believe. I don't remember at this point. I know I was very happy before Casino went down that I took one of them out. Yes, and, and I was going to say I know like all the minions were gone, and of the four people that were actually a problem, fifty percent of them were gone by the end of the yeah. fight. I do love that in games when you can be like, I I might be getting taken out, but I'm taking you with me. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and also Kazina, you know, she managed to do the the sneak attack with the uh, with the crit because yes. she, we got to the third uh, layer action there, and I got to be mean and do a thing that I generally do not do most of the time, and that is we had our cleric and our cyanite were both down to zero, so the paladins just like took an action and went chunk and gave them a couple death saves, <laughs> like yeah. you do, like you should. I try and follow a narrative pattern for it. Most of the time, I don't have people just that bloodthirsty. But, you know, certain things like, you know, if you get dropped to zero hit points by a ghoul, I'm going to have them chew on you. Mm-hmm. Jared was running that fight like Solasta runs its encounters yes. in that video game. <laughs> I love me some Solasta, man. Just uh, man, those <laughs> NPC tactics are vicious in that game. <laughs> Gotta be careful. Such a good game, but man, the NPCs are dicks. I have I have never counterspelled or revivify though. I will just throw oh. that out there. The game has done that to me, and I have never done that to someone else. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, everyone learned what it was like to die by battle axe that day. They all raised up, and they had a great feast. The feast was going to count as a hero's feast. So if they leave and do something within the next twenty four hours, they still get a pretty nice benefit from part- participating in the feast. And I gave each of them a chance to boast about what they were doing. And this was very simple. I made it a DC 10 challenge, and then they would get gifts if they were to just boast about what they were doing. And Marin did not want to boast about what he did during the fight. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of in-character hesitancy to it, but also yes. like, like, come on! you like. I, I basically argued for Kazina is awkward and has absolutely no social skills whatsoever. She does not even have deception because she is that <laughs> awkward. But it's funny. She, you know, like 
okay, story. Okay. Um, well, this is what happened. And basically I argued for being able to use acrobatics to basically describe what happened. And Jared's like, okay. She pantomimed the fight. It was great. And then basically <laughs> when, when Marin and Mazrum were both like, no, no, we, 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 you know, we don't, we don't really brag. And I'm like, come on. You're a historian. Tell us the history. <laughs> history is all about Give stories, us- man. Yeah. First-hand accounts, if you can get them. So what they ended up getting handed out to them was a staff that you can use to supercharge spells. Basically, it lets you upcast spells without spending a higher spell slot. A shield that lets you summon a swarm of ravens to scout for you. Bracers that let you ignore difficult terrain. And a suit of adamantine armor. So all of this boasting and putting up with being killed did get them some prizes. They did decide at the end of the feast that they think they're going to travel to Klangadesh, which is in the Kobold Press cosmology. Klangadesh is like this huge cosmic market where people from different planes come to trade and sell things. So there are actually magic items for sale there, unlike other places in D&D 5e. So, hey, while you're out there traveling the planes, why not stop by and see if you can spend some of your gold on some actual magic items? So, that's probably where we're going next. And then after that, we'll see whether they decide to go to the Evermaw, which is the plane of undead afterlife, or the Eleven Hells. Eleven Hells. That's a lot of Hells. Not as many as Marvel, but that's a lot of Hells. <laughs> Chris, why don't you tell us about your campaign? Uh, I will give a high-level version of my game, because both of those <laughs> games... I'm running... Okay, so... It's a homebrew world that I've been running in. I've been using this campaign setting for like 20 some odd years. I pull it out every once in a while. I just call it Elemental Aspects. It, the name of the world's Eldar, who cares? But the reason it's called Elemental Aspects is because <laughs> there's six elements that people can use. Earth, fire, wind, water, light, and dark. And it's high magic as heck. Now, the magic systems in the game, like this earth, wind, all the spells are like related to those. And a lot of creatures and humanoids are related to those elements too. So there's rules that go along with that. Like if you are fire aspected or you have a fire reagent because creatures and humanoids can be harvested for reagents and then refined into like reagent <laughs> dust it's not it's people don't usually do that because it's kind of frowned upon go ahead ask a question it's, it's not really like the thing that you're supposed to do right like you're not supposed to kill people and take their <laughs> take their their essence i need that spleen <laughs> yeah i know right that that's a thing don't get me wrong like you go kill a typhling because typhlings aren't demonic they're just infused with, they've been infused with fire element. That's, that's how they became, they, there's a whole group of them that merged with fire elementals and that's how you got <laughs> tieflings. Anyways, you can use the elements in opposition. So like if you use fire against somebody that's water, you have advantage on your, you can to choose if you have advantage on your attack rollers, they have disadvantage on their saving throw, stuff like that. That's the house rule that goes along with that. Plus all these reagents can be used to craft magic items and also just off the cuff like i'm gonna pull out one of these reagents and use it to like for instance somebody has a hat of levitation and invisibility they made themselves invisible and levitated and then used a wind reagent to push themselves across this cavern while invisible and levitating (laughs) right so you can do stuff like that and they come in various it's got the diablo system so like there's common uncommon rare legendary and epic epic and legendary whichever way (laughs) that goes and they're all worth money like this is a big thing in the game because i was like I got annoyed that money is hard to spend in D&D. Like at some point, like you just have all this cash. You don't know what to do with it. I'm like, well, you can use it to buy and sell reagents and also make magic items. That means artifice, alchemy, and enchantment is a big deal in this world too. So like I have like systems for that stuff too. The game, uh, one of them is about an adventuring company called the Crosswater Adventuring Company. 
Now, adventuring companies in this world are few and far between. You have to be government sanctioned to have an adventuring company charter. So a king or a queen from one of the two major nations has to give you this charter. Party themselves comes in and they start off in the Crosswater Adventuring Company, which there's four of them, but there's 32 members of the Crosswater Adventuring Company. So there's a lot of NPCs in the game. The game is called the uh, Legacy of the Archmage because 100 years ago, an archmage named Aldun activated something called the Inventarium, and it was supposed to be a wish machine, and it changed history. It changed the timeline. So this person realizing that the machine was extremely dangerous, broke it up and hid the parts. This is my rod of seven parts <laughs> uh, homage and hid the memory of the machine from everybody while looking for a way to destroy it. Uh, unfortunately, like a hundred years later, someone accidentally found one of the parts which broke that spell. So now all these powerful people that were around a hundred years ago know what exists and are looking for it. To tie this into the group, Al Doom was one of the founders of the Crosswater Adventuring Company and his brother, who is immortal, but didn't get the eternal youth part of it. So he's like a 127 year old little man. <laughs> Poor guy. That's just mean. I know, right? He runs the operation, the Crosswater Adventuring Company, and the PCs are um, all members of the Crosswater Adventuring Company with various motivations to be there. For instance, my uh, host, Bob Everson of Misdirector Mark Podcast, plays in that game. He is a tiefling from a uh, the kingdom of tieflings that exists kind of far in the north. He came here as a prince. He's a prince. He came here to try to get in with the people here so that he could establish relations. He wants to set up like an embassy and have trade routes and things like that between his people and their people, which has a, been a thing. Like He used a lot of downtime points to to get that to happen so like now there's like a trade route being constructed and there's friendly relations going on between the the tieflings of aldu uh, the tieflings of well, i can't remember the name of the place it, it's written down somewhere but we've played like 19 sessions of this game right now they're on a spell jammer in the <laughs> astral sea about to go inside of a the dead body of one of the aspects that used to be the the god of god of lightning god of wind god of wind but they're really just aspected people because anybody can ascend they're actually there to control the elements but that's what they're doing right now they just uh they just got done walking through the memories of the ship that they're on because all of the the new modern spell jammers in my campaign setting which is a kickback from a campaign i ran like seven <laughs> years ago are uh they had children that were raised to a point where then they could take the souls out of them and use them as the control modules for the spell jammers <laughs> Oh. Yeah, and in this game, one of the NPCs, one of the he's kind of like the Iron Man of the setting, which they're all friends with. His name is Dryden. They found out that his kid was dying, so being who he was and having this technology around that he'd been researching, put his son's soul inside of the ship to try to get his hands on the inventory so he could reconstitute his body. It's like L3. <laughs> the last two sessions that they played, they've been walking through dungeons, like the inside of this mindscape of the ship trying not to hurt anything because they don't want to hurt the ship that they like. Cause they talk to him all the time. His name is Cal. <laughs> and they're like, there's like antibodies trying to kill them. I'm not trying to tell them what to do, but like the antibodies, whenever they touch them, like disintegrate parts of them. So if they get knocked to zero, they die. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, you want to fight? Like, I'm not trying not to tell them what to do. Eventually they found out what was going on. They didn't know the story, learned the story. And we're like, well, I don't know what to do about this, but they left Dryden because, uh, son didn't realize what had happened to him uh cal took dryden inside when he figured out what was going on he was mad the angry eight-year-old that also has like cosmic knowledge now <laughs> they left the dad down there so they're like sans their super powerful artificer friend and they're about to go inside the the body of a of a dead um dead aspect of a of of the wind while they're trying to race a guy named zendelholm who is a the lich there's only one lich in the in the world and they found out that 
he used to be the Archmage, and his friend Aldoon was a sorcerer who wanted to be as powerful as him and use the Infantarium to get the power, and it messed everything up. So now he, he used to not be a lich, he used to be a good dude that was part of the Crossword Adventure Company, now he's a lich who's really angry and trying to get the Infantarium to fix things. They're racing him for that, and he's fighting like a giant two-headed dragon behemoth thing that's guarding all these dead gods' bodies. So, you know, that's where I'm at 19 sessions in. Like you do. <laughs> they got three of the five parts. I have always loved the, the dead bodies drifting in the astral plane ever yeah. since it was introduced. So good. Like, I've been planning that since before session one. I'm like, one of these pieces is hit, one of the, the staff of travels hidden inside the dead, uh, the body of a, a dead god. <laughs> There's a note from like last year that's got that written down. All right, I'm done. Any questions? I agree with what you're saying about not having much to spend gold on. I don't necessarily want to fling the door open and have it be like third edition where like you're just expected to be able to find magic items wherever as part of the design. But I also like, you know, as I mentioned, I kind of like that they're going to go on this side quest to Klangadesh because it does give them a chance, like knowing that there's this whole plane with, you know, magic items for sale makes me feel a little bit better because it's not like they're going to a store on the corner and doing it. And that's why I kind of like that with crafting, you know, there too, if you're putting the emphasis on that. Yes, the emphasis is on crafting. Like, if you want to build some pretty... So, one thing, no plus ones in my game. Like, most of the people for, for weapons and armor, like, most of the weapons and armor in my game either provide more damage or temporary hit points. Because, to me, I'm a big temporary hit point person because D&D is a game of attrition. Two, you need really rare or rarer higher elements to make uh, reagents to make magic items that are, like, worthwhile. And um, it takes time and, and skill. So you have to find people to do it or have the skill to do it yourself. Also, the more elements that you mix together, the harder and more expensive it is and the better of a person that you need to do it. So like I have like a apprentice journeyman master system in the game, too. There's a lot of house rules. This is like a house. <laughs> this game's so house ruled for like that stuff that it because I wanted it like every spell has an aspect to it, too. Like we have a we have a chart for it. Like Bob helped me put it together. But so like poisons water acid is earth it's not it's not too hard like uh depending on the spell like uh illusions can be light or dark depending on which which one it is yeah and i was gonna say um from what you've described building things and artifice and all of that seems like it's a big part of the setting so when you start adding mechanics in to reinforce that feeling then it makes sense (laughs) yeah Uh, a lot of pages there's a lot of pages of notes (laughs) sounds like a really interesting game world and I love I love the framework you've got set up of the adventuring company, but then also that their quest is they have to recover these seven pieces to fix a big bad thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see. I have no idea what they're going to do. <laughs> Bob has an work. idea. Everybody else has an idea. Everybody's looking for it. <laughs> the interesting thing for me though is my other group because I run alternating Fridays, two different groups. They play in the same world at the same time. They've crossed over a couple of times. That's funny. I haven't done concurrent D&D, but I did concurrent Edge of the Empire when I was running Star Wars. I, there were two different groups of people working for the same, basically, underworld figure. And, you know, depending on who finished what job first, they would get the next job and it would influence the other group. And I was running them on alternating Thursdays. So nice. that was fun. Yeah, I'm doing that same exact thing, essentially. Both groups are, one group's like 17 sessions in, the other group's 19 sessions in. So, like, we're getting towards the uh, towards the end of stuff. And I'm notoriously terrible for, like, slow leveling. Like, I think the group that's 19 sessions in is only level 8. The group that's 17 sessions in is, like, level 7. 
<laughs> because I think that D&D plays best between the levels of 3 and 12. That's me. Yeah, I mean, we, we had an episode about that. So. I know, I edited it. <laughs> <laughs> you may but have for the listeners at home, Ange is correct. <laughs> All right, so I think we may want to head over to the Dungeon Master's Workshop at this point. Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. And we're going to start off with a non-spoiler section and then give you a heads up when we start talking about the plot in more detail. Uh, it's okay. You can save the podcast and finish up after you watch the movie. But if you wait for it to stream, don't forget about us because we'll get really lonely. So lonely. So lonely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everybody. Outside of the game itself, what are some of the ways you've interacted with D&D media? Do I go first? Do you go first? Who goes first? Chris goes first. You're the guest. The guest goes first. Okay. So uh, I'm, I got a list. This is a bit of a list. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to go fast. The D&D cartoon. I've read the main Dragonlance novels, like the the four or seven. Is there seven now? I forget. Oh, there's oh, a lot. I think there's of them as seven because of the time of the twins I consider to be some of the main Dragonlance novels. So seven. A bunch of Forgotten Re- Realms novels, including around 20 of the Drist books, although Elminster Making of a Mage was pretty pretty memorable for me, along with the Cell Swords trilogy. That's Jarlaxle and Artemis and Terry. Love those books. They're fun. They're not great, but they're fun. <laughs> Two of the older D&D movies. I never saw Book of Vile Darkness. We don't have to talk about them again. They're terrible. Uh, <laughs> Dungeon, the board game, Lords of Waterdeep, and several other D&D inspired board games. I particularly like Rock, Paper, Wizard as a party game. It's a lot of fun to like make symbols at each other and say, I flaming hands to you. Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, as far as video <laughs> games go. Icewind Dale, some of the old gold box video games like Eye of the Beholder and the tactical isometric Dragonlance one, Champions of Kryn. The Draconians in that were great because they all had those triggers when they died and it was, you know, awful when they exploded the first time and two people died. It started my love of the tactical video game RPGs. Uh, the D&D beat-em-up arcade game, Tower of Doom. I played it in the arcade and on emulators whenever I could because I love it. The first Dark Alliance game where if you beat it, you got to play Drist and Artemis and Terry. Love that. The new Dark Alliance game where you get to play the companions uh, of... The, the companions, Tristan and Bruner and all them, uh, Neverwinter Nights, the Neverwinter MMO, the D&D Idol game, Baldur's Gate 3, and pretty much anything I will play with a D&D brand on it. There you go. Yeah, you were listing all that stuff, and I'm like, is there anything <laughs> D&D you haven't messed around with? There's actually a lot of stuff D&D that I haven't played. I looked at the list. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of D&D themed stuff out there. Oh, yeah. I think there's going to be some similarities between the three of us, because I also watched the D&D cartoon as a kid in the 80s. Also, very early in the 80s, I read a book called Quag Keep nice. by Andre Norton, which is basically, it's, it's, this, it's kind of the same, same plot as the D&D cartoon. <laughs> basically, you have college kids who get transported into a fantasy realm. It's, it's very different, not the same tonally at all. And it was a very early exposure to the concept of role-playing games and role-playing game worlds. Um, I don't necessarily recommend it. It was a very old <laughs> book. It wasn't something that stuck me, but it was something I read. I also read the heck out of the original Dragonlance trilogies. I also do count the the, the War of the Twins as, I think that's the name of it, the second trilogy. Mm, yep. I, I read the heck out of those. I also read some of the early Forgotten Realms books, the Icewind Dale, um, some of the early Dritzwoods. I did not follow all of them. Although I have bought most of them for my brother as Christmas presents over the years. <laughs> uh, and there were some of the other Forgotten Realms books I've read that I have forgotten the names of the characters or the authors. But there was a bunch of good ones set around Waterdeep that I really liked. Oh, are you talking about Elaine Cunningham's? Because... Yes! Oh my gosh, yes, Elaine, Elaine Cunningham, Cunningham should still books. be doing Realms novels. 
yeah, her books were really, <laughs> really good. I have also spent a lot of time in video games. Oddly, I never got into the original Baldur's Gate games. I tried playing the first one more recently and got really, really mad at it because <laughs> it is essentially second edition D&D, &D, which I hate a lot. And there was a spider I could not kill. So I put the game oh, down and spider. have not gone back to it yet. Can I tell a story real quick about that game? <laughs> sure. So like I used to play that on PC back in the day. And there's the ambush that happens right when you get out of the inn. And I can't stand that part. You get fireballed right away. And there's a very low chance that you survive that encounter. So I totally save scum that encounter because you could press the space bar to stop time. So I'd be like, all right, here it comes, the fireball. And I would hit I would hit the space bar, let it go off. The fireball would go off. I'd be like, all right, I hit the space bar again. Like, all right, who's dead? Well, four people are dead. Reset. And just, like five seconds earlier, let's do it again till everybody survived the saving throw. Because I'm that guy. <laughs> the thing is, though, is while I did not get into the Baldur's Gate games, I played the heck out of Icewind Dale and Icewind Dale 2, which are essentially the same mechanics. But for some reason, those games I really, really got into. Superior gameplay, not as good story. Not as good story really good gameplay yeah because basically you're making you're making the party yourself there's not a preset character that is the hero of those games you're just making the party yeah i mean like it, it, it's funny i am a huge bioware fan because of the characters that you that you're that are your companions but i didn't find them until i started playing dragon <laughs> age i missed all of that from the, the Baldur's Gate mm. games and uh, their their Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic game. Man, Knights of the Old Republic 1 is so good. Yeah. I'm trying not to go off on a tangent about Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, now. so many tangents. <laughs> I have also played the heck out of Neverwinter Nights. I tried Neverwinter Nights too, but I got really mad at it because I didn't like some of the voice acting. And I also got stuck at a point where I could not beat the fight. And so I set the game down and never went back to it. I also spent a year of my life in the Neverwinter Nights MMO. <laughs> I like that game. It's fun. It, it was, but I have a problem with MMOs <laughs> and I need to be careful about how I engage with them. And I had not touched an MMO since I left EverQuest in 2004. <laughs> um, so 2014, I got into the Neverwinter MMO and I lost 2014 <laughs> to that game. So I know that I need to be careful with those games. Can I tell a side story again? <laughs> of course. So I'm a big World of Warcraft player, at least I used to be. When I was much younger, like 20 years ago, uh, I, one day I was, I was playing World of Warcraft and I stopped and hit slash played on my character and I said 178 days played. And I'm like, well, <laughs> this is a problem. During the, I started playing again during the pandemic. One day I hit slash played during the pandemic and said 112 days played. I'm like, this is a problem. Yeah, yeah. It, I, it, I don't need to go into why MMOs are a problem for me. Let's just say that it's best if Ange avoids them at if all possible. When it says 112 days played, folks, that's how much time you've played the game. <laughs> yeah. Just throwing it out there is not good. Yes. I will say I am looking forward to the Baldur's Gate 3 that is in pre-release early access right now but should have the full game released this summer, I believe. Ooh, Ange, we could play together. I have it. Yeah, I want to. That that one looks good. Okay, Jared, your turn. I am also old enough to remember watching the D&D cartoon on Saturday morning, but I'm also old enough to remember having a friend whose mom told him that he couldn't watch it because it's satanic. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I have spent hours and hours playing uh, CRPGs like Icewind Dale, Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights. Like Ange, I was I leaned much more heavily towards Icewind Dale. I've like replayed that at least three or four times. The first one, there's something about it I really like. It's I don't know, but um, I've watched all of the D and D movies, unfortunately, including uh, Book of Vildor. <laughs> I heard it was good. People tell me it's good. It, you know, comparatively what, Chris, speaking, sometimes people lie to you. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, I heard it was better than the previous two. Well, that's that's just it. When when you watch the other ones in order, you watch this one and go, okay, for a made-to-TV movie, it didn't make my eyes bleed. And <laughs> <laughs> That's still two hours of my life. Yeah, I, I've also read like uh, just a ridiculous number of D&D novels, mainly Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms. Up until 4th edition, I think I had read, it, I think I could count on one hand the number of Forgotten Realms novels that I hadn't read. Um, I wasn't quite as uh assiduous in reading all of the Dragonlance novels, but I especially loved uh the Hickman and Weiss novels and also uh Richard Nax, which got into like the Minotaurs and things like that, because I love Minotaurs. I I have my things. We could do D D book club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have made some mistakes in my life. Speaking of mistakes, I have even watched the animated Dragonlance movie. <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that oh i also mm-hmm. wanted to throw out chris mentioned it uh, lords of Waterdeep. lords of Waterdeep is a great uh great board game i highly recommend it i feel like there's a really important video game that we're not mentioning that i'm pretty sure we've probably all at least played or heard of planescape torment yes oh uh, i did not play that one man it's so good <laughs> yeah it, it might be the best of those games yeah and i mean it was extremely extremely story focused and it delved into planescape as a setting like, if you had no idea what Planescape was, this would tell you exactly what that setting was. <laughs> Agreed. Okay, now that we've gone over our engagements with other D&D media, um, before seeing any of the trailers or hearing anything about the movie, what were you expecting from a new D&D movie? Can I go first? Because it's going to be really short. Yeah. Nothing. I expected nothing. I just hoped that it would be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm similar. I tend to be very careful about my expectations regarding movie and TV shows, because I have enough experience in my life with this to know that a lot of stuff is talked about, a lot of stuff gets optioned, and then never goes anywhere. So I don't really put a whole lot of expectation into things until I see that they are like actually filming, like they're in production. We're not talking pre-production, we're talking production. I did not think anything about the D&D movie until I heard Chris Pine was attached to it. <laughs> when I heard Chris Pine was attached to it, I'm like, okay, he is a big enough star that, you know, this, if he is the star, this means this might actually have some effort behind it. I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know that I was expecting a whole lot, especially looking at Hasbro's track record for movies that they turn their properties into like i was pretty much done with the transformers movie after the first one and the second gi joe movie was blandly okay i wanted snake eyes to be good and it was an interesting action movie about characters that i did not recognize from the gi joe property so it was interesting (laughs) um i was at this point just hoping this was going to be you know better than battleship <laughs> That's not a very high expectation. So I get you, man. I understand. But like I was managing expectations because the main 
Hasbro related movie that I thought was really good was Bumblebee. I love Bumblebee. That was good. It is a good movie. That's a good movie. And I think it's it's worthwhile mentioning that these are Hasbro properties because Hasbro has their own studio that specifically turns their properties into movies. And that is the studio that was involved with this movie in general. All right. So now what is a broad non-spoilery plot of this movie? How would you encapsulate it, Chris? Escape, betrayal, escape, gathering of party, dungeons and dragons, heist, arena, heroics. And do you have a summary? I mean, I don't know that I have anything to say that you guys aren't going to cover, but it's a movie about a group of heroes finding their lives again. My synopsis was just adventurers need to steal something to get their old lives back while encountering lots of magic and creatures native to the Forgotten Realms. And to me, saying creatures native to the Forgotten Realms is important because it's not it, what's really important is this is not a generic fantasy movie. They actually take advantage of the IP and that that's something I think is important to drive home there. I'm sorry, everybody. I have very little to say until we get to the spoiler part. That's okay. Um, so without spoiling anything, what was your favorite aspect of the movie? That it didn't suck. All right. And <laughs> <laughs> to be completely honest, that it happened at all. I mean, seriously, did you ever think that you would see D&D on the screen like this after living through the 1980s and the satanic panic and the derision that D&D had in the 80s and 90s, and then the disastrous 2000s movie with poor Jeremy Irons slumming for a paycheck. Did you ever expect to see this? Yes, I did. But that's only because we've gotten the Lord of the Rings since then. That's true. That is very true. We had the Lord of the Rings, you know, in 2000, when we got, the reason we got the crappy D&D movie <laughs> was because of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Then we have Marvel, though. Like, yes. once comic book property started becoming a thing, I, I actually expected us to get another D&D thing at some point. Yeah. The Marvel stuff coming out is probably more impactful on this movie than Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings, they tried to do some fantasy stuff to play, you know, to like ride that wave. And most of them did it wrong because none of the fantasy movies from the early 2000s are memorable in the slightest. There's also so many novels these days, mm -hmm. YA novels and just novels in general that are getting option for like TV shows or movies. And I'm like, that don't have nearly the audience that Dungeons and Dragons has. The, um, there was an interesting thing. I, I forced myself to watch the 2000 movie again before I went to see this. Oh, <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> oh, Jared. I don't know. Did the magic in your soul die a little bit every time a dragon died? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, one of the things that was interesting is I also watched a video from uh, Movies with Mikey, you know, that channel. And they actually did a really interesting job of pointing out how much the 2000 Dungeons and Dragons movie was actually cribbing a lot of things from the Phantom Menace more than it was from D&D. &D. And it's, it's interesting if you want to, like, dwell way too much on a movie that should just you know fall into the void you could go watch that video but <laughs> otherwise don't <laughs> is that from uh, movies with mikey's series deep dive yes where they basically take a bad movie and try and find something good about it exactly yes i love that series so much because they really do take <laughs> some bad movies and acknowledge that they are bad movies but still try and find the good in them whether it's a you know a performance certain writing or the fact that this was people putting their heart and soul 
into a movie that just turned into kind of crap. Do you know what the D&D movie from 2000 doesn't have that the original Star Wars trilogy, the prequel Star Wars trilogy does have? A TV show called The Clone Wars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that make everything so much better. Yeah. <laughs> After that sideline, my favorite part in of non-spoilery stuff is the acting was so solid in this and people just heartfelt loved what they were doing and you could tell especially page and pine those two were just so amazing with everything that they threw into this and they were both really good at being over the top but not feeling like caricatures yes just seeing them in this was some of my favorite but everybody in it was really good so without spoiling anything again what was your least favorite aspect of the movie chris i wish they gave the druid more to do i agree yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I liked her, and I liked what she got to do that we saw on the screen, but it would have been nice to see a little more. I agree. It's interesting going into that, having read the uh, the novel that they put out with her backstory, because I'm sitting here watching this going, I don't know if they wrote this before, and they knew this as they were making the character. Not that they wrote the whole novel. I mean, like, that they knew these points from her backstory. It's interesting. Yeah, novelizations related to movies are all, are are very interesting business because a lot of times the authors have not seen the final product. They have not seen the script. They've just been given a summary and told, go. E.K. Johnson, who wrote the book about Doric, has written a bunch of YA stories about Leia and Padme. Both of those series are really strong and have been very interesting to read, especially from the standpoint of seeing how Leia started working for the Rebel Alliance, you know, in her teen years. So they're both authors that are very competent at the kind of stories that they were portraying. Very cool. By the way, I read Road to Neverwinter. It was fun. I liked it. I, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. And I think it did a very consistent job of portraying them the way they came across in the movie. So would you recommend the movie? And would that recommendation change if you were talking to a gamer versus a non-gamer? Let's go with Chris first. I got some stuff here. Okay, so if you're a gamer, go see it yesterday. If you're a non-gamer but fan of geek movies, you should also go see it yesterday. <laughs> if you're a person who likes comedy, go see it yesterday. Uh, if you're a person who likes art film and thought that everything, everywhere, all at once was good, go see it tomorrow if you have time. <laughs> Everyone else, you should probably just watch it at some point. I like that summary. And? Yeah, I mean, I would probably, maybe not quite that succinctly, but... <laughs> yes. If you are a gamer who has ever enjoyed D&D, you need to go see it yesterday. If you are a gamer who doesn't have their panties in a twist about D&D just existing, go see it yesterday. If you do have your panties in a twist, seek therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's it's okay to not like D&D, but to just root for its demise, just <laughs> go talk to a therapist. There's better outlets for that type of anger. Uh, if you are a person who does not game, but likes nerdy movies, go see it. If you like the MCU movies, you will probably enjoy this movie. I'm not saying it's an MCU movie. It is absolutely not. But it has some similar feel to it in that there is definitely heart and honest emotion in this movie. But there is also a whole lot of humor and fun action. I think if you like action movies and people saying smart aleck things to each other and blatant heart tugging and you like uh, fantasy and fantastic special effects, you'll probably like this movie. And I feel like that's true if you're a gamer or a non-gamer. If you have liked Chris Pine in either the Star Trek franchise or in the Wonder Woman movies, you're going to want to see it. 
it's it's Chris Pine being extremely Chris Pine. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we are going to stop. Let you know that we are getting into spoiler territory. If you don't want to find out the juicy details of the movie, now would be the time to plane shift out of here, and we will see you on the other side. All right. What did this movie do that you expected it to do, Chris? So the parts they showed in the trailer didn't spoil the moments in the movie. They either have way more context or were a smaller part of a larger scene that was just awesome. For instance, the undead question sequence. I know that trailer <laughs> came out with the one guy, but then they had to go from place to place yes. to place to like talk to a bunch of different uh, dead dead elk members, elk tribe members. Oh. And I thought that was hilarious. I had a especially the guy that fell and slipped and blanked, banged his head, and he's like, "Oh, yes, that's not that me. That was that's, wonderful. That was my I brother." <laughs> And then you went to the battle? No, I died. <laughs> that was my brother. <laughs> then they left that guy there. That poor guy. <laughs> that poor guy. I saw Thember Shard in the trailer. That's the giant pudgy red dragon. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that's cool. But that whole sequence is amazing. Like giant chain <laughs> falling down the um the the running up the the platform that's swaying. And they do a really good job of like setting things up and paying them off so well in that movie. Like when they're running up, I've seen this. I've seen this movie three times. Okay, so like I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a fanboy here. <laughs> when they're running up the 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 skeleton pile, I'm like that's ominous. And then they get blown backwards over the top of it. And then what does the dragon do? It comes out. It looks goofy as shit. And then it starts sliding down at them and eats one of the bad guys. I'm like, well, that's bad. Plus he's undead and he doesn't die, so it's gonna be a bad couple hours for him until he gets you know sh- uh, shunted out the other end. Assuming he doesn't get burned up on the inside. Also, uh, Zenk's role in the movie, I thought it was pretty good. Like, it was more than I expected it to be, and it, it was more than I thought it was going to it, it was different from what I thought it was going to be, and it did a good job of pulling him off what he was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, with the, the trailers, I was I had hope. I had hope that this was going to be a good movie, and then a lot of the early word about the movie had... Um, had good you know it was getting good reviews and so i'm like oh this is gonna be good and just gonna finally get her nerdy <laughs> fantasy D movie ah um and it gave me that it really did give me that you know and like the cast they had like obviously chris pine is chris pine he is one of the iconic chris's <laughs> he's fun to watch I have had a thing for Michelle Rodriguez <laughs> for decades at this point. So her getting to be Holga was just, that was what I wanted out of it. And while I don't know um, Simon or Doric's actors as well, I have liked them in the things that I have seen them. Mm-hmm. And while I did not watch Bridgerton, I can <laughs> admire what Paige brings to the screen and he gave me everything <laughs> I wanted with that character. I love that the running joke there is that that he's not fun to talk to and yet he is so charismatic just for being as stoic as he is about everything. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think, I mean, the only thing that I was really hoping that it would do, that I was expecting it would do well, is for all of the people in the adventuring group to have chemistry with each other and play off of each other. I was really hoping that Nobody got too overshadowed. Obviously, it's going to lean a little bit more heavily towards some of the characters more than others. But I think they did a really good job delivering with that, that I was kind of thinking that they were going to. And also, I was kind of convinced that they were going to be able to pull off using D&D specific monsters or fantasy elements 
in a way that wasn't just using a proper noun, and they also did pull that off really well. I agree with you 100%. The, the uh, Justice Smith, that's the sorcerer. What the heck? Yes. yes. What's his name? The character's name? Simon Omar? Yeah, Simon Om- o- Omar. Yeah, o- Omar. I can't say it because it, it, they said Omar in the movie, but it's spelled because it's, it's, it's A-U-M-A-R. Yeah, A-U-M-A-R. Uh-huh. Uh, it felt like he had been part of their crew for a long time mm-hmm. yes. as soon as he shows up on screen. Oh, yeah. And him and him and Holga and Ed, they, they mesh super well together. Yeah, definitely. It's great, great acting. And, and as much as I've been like praising Chris Pine and, and, and Paige and everything, Michelle Rodriguez was great in this. C- crushed it. 100%. <laughs> also, best potato thrower in the face of Faerun. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so we had a bard, a barbarian, a sorcerer, a druid, and a paladin. And then whatever Forge Fitzwilliam was, but he's a separate thing. <laughs> and each of them, even if the even if the class was not portrayed exactly as it is in the game when you're at the table, they still absolutely embodied the aspects of those classes. I loved the fact that Simon was a wild sorcerer and just random shit happens when he casts spells. It was great. <laughs> oh, that was so wonderful. I don't know that I would want to play the way they were talking about it or the way they've written his character up, whereas, you know, it's like he casts a spell, you roll a 1d6, and on a 1, something else happens. <laughs> okay, that would be a pain. Yeah. But I've played a wild sorcerer for years, and it is fun. But with Michelle Rodriguez as as Holga, you knew she was a barbarian. You just knew it from... <laughs> Her, like, she had no shits to give about a variety of things, but was still had the heart. And I loved the fact that she got the name of everything wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also like, even though Edgen may not have been, like, throwing spells around or whatever, you could literally at times see him handing out inspiration in the movie. I do find it funny that the the most iconic scene of him being a bard when he basically is distracting the guards, was essentially an illusion. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know if we want to talk about that in another section, but I was laughing so hard the first time I saw that. Oh, I was too. <laughs> I was dying. I'm like, well, n- I turned, so so I was sitting with a with a friend, maybe watching not a quite legal version of the movie, but I'd already seen it twice in theaters. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to the lexicon. This is how everybody's going to interpret like a messed up illusion. Now I'm like, this is this is awful and great at the same time. <laughs> that's that's a failed constitution save on uh, for uh, concentration on that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what is it that the movie did that surprised you, uh, Chris? I love studying story structure. It's like my my biggest hobby and what I went to school for too. And the quality of this film structure blew me out of the water. I was not expecting to get an actually well-constructed movie. So to me, opening images in movies matter a lot. So the opening image of this movie is a blur on a white background because it's a storm. And we, we eventually find out that it's a, a sled being drawn by horses, but we can't quite see it because it's indicating that the whole, one of the major themes of the movie is a misdirection. Like it's everything's like sleight of head and hidden by hidden in, in shadows and things like that, which a lot of the things that happen in this movie, including the thing that resolves the movie, is a misdirection. So brilliant opening image to like set up everything that's going on here. And then I'm like, what the hell is going on in this movie? Because I'm like, this is way more serious than I want it to be. And they like pull out the 
pull out the, the, the hobgoblin, they put him on the chains, and they bring him up to the cell, and then sure enough, there's Chris Pine playing Ed, and Michelle Rodriguez eating a potato as a b- barbarian, a and the jokes start happening. I'm like, yes! It was a misdirection on top of a misdirection. Like, here we go. So then, and then that thing is like, well, we're going to get Ed doing some dialogue. I'm going to talk about the opening sequence of the movie because it sets up the whole movie. The Indiana Jones did. If you know, if you ever watch <laughs> Temple of Doom, not Temple of Doom, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the opening sequence of Indiana Jones tells you kind of what the movie's going to be mm-hmm. for the entire movie. This this movie does the same thing. He uh, He's smooth talking over there being like, oh, I'm going to warn you this, that, and the other thing. And he does a lot of that. Like, this is going to go poorly for you. And then sure enough, she annihilates him. Also, you know, puts the potato off to the side before she annihilates the hobgoblin. <laughs> that potato's important, okay? <laughs> that, that potato is Chekhov's potato. Chekhov's potato. <laughs> so then they go to the next part of that, which is the after the scene outside where they're like, oh, we're going to get out of here. I can't. John, John, Jonathan's supposed to be there. He's an Aarakocra. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, why was that important? They go upstairs and John, Jonathan's not there. Funny right there. Like, I had a plan. The plan didn't work. This is a theme for the movie, right? Like, there's a thing that happens over and over again. <laughs> then he starts BSing and he goes into his backstory. Which is one funny as a as a D and D thing, right? That's that's a great joke, <laughs> and it shows you some of the heart of the movie too, because it, it's going back to telling you who this pe- this person is. And we're going to get more of these backstories as the as the movie goes on. Uh, there's like some flashback and whatnot, and he keeps then coming back to like if Jonathan was here, which is hilarious. Like that gag <laughs> gets funnier and funnier when the dragonborn was like, "You already said this part." <laughs> yeah, I know, right? When he's like, "You went back too far." <laughs> like what do i need your three-page backstory for i never would have expected them to make that funny like in the movie but they did a great job with it and then eventually they get to the end of it like him telling the story his wife died from the red wizards and it's hard for him and all that stuff you know we find out what happened with the time stop we we get introduced to sophina and simon and, and and forge it's a great introduction to all these characters real quick and then and he's like before you past your judgment as he slams the thing down Jonathan walks in he's like oh Jonathan he walks over to him and Jonathan's like who are you and I'm like uh oh <laughs> then, then Egan's like now Holga picks up the stool beats one of the guards flings the potato at the other guard which is like foreshadowing for later they both grab Jonathan they jump out the window as the guy says but we just pardoned you I'm like yep and they get away like they have the arrow croaker at the very end fly them away which they crash they're like, yes. And then they're like, he's still breathing like good. And then they walk away. And that's the intro to the movie. You don't need to know anything else because you just got told everything that's going to happen. Yep. You make a really good point about how that actually, you know, basically tells you the shape of the rest of the movie. And one of the things that's important there is they stop to make sure that Jonathan is still alive. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not just a, you know, we don't care. We got out of here. It's telling you what kind of people they are by doing that. Yep. And they reinforce that repeatedly. Like they said it earlier. We're like, we only stole from people that could afford it. Like, that's mm-hmm. part of the backstory. So, you know, like, they do a good job of, like, doing things twice to make sure that you realize what's going on. But it doesn't feel like they're hammering you with it. They're just reinforcing it. Correct. And they often make the story move forward. They they do, um, I call this mixing beats. They do a good job of mixing beats so that a beat is fulfilling more than one thing at a time. And it keeps, it makes pace go faster in, in storytelling. That's what I have to say about it. That's what surprised <laughs> me. I couldn't believe how well they did with that. And what surprised you? You know, what What I'm going to say is not nearly as on point as what Chris is going to say, but what surprised and delighted me was Holga's taste in men. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, 
her her romantic partners. The cameo was Bradley Cooper. That was unsurprised. And then the fact that he was a halfling. Yeah. I just was like, oh my God. And then the fact that his current romantic partner is an even bigger woman than Holga. And I'm just like, this is Redley and Mabel from my game. But I love that. And then just a little nod to it at the end when she kind of smiles and winks at a halfling who's presenting her with an award at the end. You know, it was just like, okay, this this is very silly, but it makes me happy. And, you know, when you're talking about the surprising parts of this movie, that scene there also does the same thing with that backstory that Egan was telling them, mm-hmm. which is that on one hand, it's humorous that you see that, oh, Holga was married to a halfling. And then you get this very serious discussion about their relationship and how she was always distant from him because she was no longer connected to her tribe. And it's like, they managed to pull heartstrings while still telling the jokes. And it was really good. I mean, it's really a tragic setup. She was exiled from her tribe for falling in love with an outsider, but then could not be happy with this man because she she was exiled from her tribe. And that cost her that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, oh, man. This movie is way better than it has any right to be, honestly. It really is. Um, the other thing, though, that kind of surprised me is I had high hopes that they were going to use d and the way they are used in D&D and not just as generic fantasy things. But I'm going to point out one specific thing that kind of floored me when I realized it. When you look at where the Uthgart tribe of the Elk has their sacred mound in the game, where they fought the Black Dragons, that's near their sacred mound. That's not just a throwaway location where all of that happened at. When that struck me, it was like, wow, they were paying attention here. This actually rolls into the next question for me. Yeah, and in that case, do you think it felt like a D&D movie and not just a fantasy movie? And what are some of the ways that the movie customized it to D&D? So, so to, to go along with, with the thing that you were just saying, Jared, aside from the, the writers being you know fans of the, of the game and the, and the directors too, they had a D&D Faerun expert in the writer's room and on set to help them just pepper the movie with as much D&D setting and feel as possible so when something came up that that they would say like you can use this spell this way or you can use a setting element this way if it works for the movie and that would just make it more Faerun D&D and then the directors and the writers would decide can we do this or is the story served by modifying that in some way and that's a lot of how the movie got put together like I read a few articles that stated that's what happened in like pre-production and during the production So that's why you got it. I think one of the things that struck me about this definitely being a D&D movie, very specifically a Forgotten Realms movie, is the way they used some of the setting. Mm -hmm. You know, even though the the part in Icewind Dale was relatively short because it's mostly just the opening of the movie, Neverwinter was, (laughs) they got Neverwinter. They really did. I mean- we have all experienced Neverwinter in our video games, you know? So it was like the fact that they got that city in the way that they did was like, okay, now in the sequel, go to Waterdeep. Oh, yeah. Well, Thumbershard's a real dragon in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah. Um, the city, the, the hanging city of, of Dolblund, that's a real place in the Underdark in the Forgotten Realms. They just were like, we're going to go from place to place and we're going to represent it properly. I have to confess, after I saw the movie... I had to come back to Jared and I'm like, okay, the fat dragon had a name. 
Is he actually in the Forgotten Realms? It's like, yes, that's Thumbershard. He's and like Jared gave me the whole story, and I'm like, oh. Well, and the other thing that's that's interesting too is Dolblund isn't just a hanging city; it is a deep gnome city. So when they specifically mentioned the gnomes built these traps this way, again, it's pulling in like, yeah, that's what the city was. Yeah, man, devils in the details, and they got the details really, really down properly. The other thing that I think is really interesting thematically is that. I know Chris Perkins created um, Rebel's End, the prison that they were in, specifically to put into this movie, and they've worked it into a few D&D products since then. But the idea that Edgen and Holga live in Icewind Dale, when the story of people that live in Icewind Dale has almost always been people that have lost everything else, they have nowhere else to go, so they live in this remote corner of the Forgotten Realms that is just desolate. That is a story beat that has been used over and over in the stories from it and they used it here and it was great the other thing that i that really got me is that they didn't just have like dragonborn and arakokra in the background they were actually characters like there were characters with lines that interacted with people in meaningful manners and that meant a lot i'm not saying they were major characters but they weren't just oh there's somebody in the background you know you literally have a dragonborn that is talking to ed back and forth during the yeah you know during his backstory and that that is a major character poor jarnathan is definitely a character (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the other thing that amazed me is in the magic fights you can tell what spells they are using because they use very obvious visuals that take their cues from how the spells are described in the game yep the um other thing about that is that they use practical effects for the most part those are people in costumes yep Mm-hmm. And I love that feel. It gave the movie a very unique feel instead of just CGIing everything, mm-hmm. which can feel weird. And it's not Star Wars, right? It's not that Star Wars feel, but it's almost something unique because it's bordering on being cartoonish without being cartoonish. For the most part, I think they used those types of characters very well because I don't know that the effects they had would have stood up to them being main characters. But as small supporting characters, they were they were on the money. Yeah, and I, I think that is, you know, to what Chris was saying there too, the fact that these non-human characters were so ubiquitous is a D&Dism. Mm-hmm. Because if you're just talking about, even in high fantasy settings, usually you have the human kingdom and then the elf shows up and everybody's in awe because there is an elf and they usually don't show up here. But in D&D, it's like, no, like 20% of our population is elves, but, you know. I, I think I think with D&D, because I remember back in the 80s and 90s, some GMs would try and run their games more like Lord of the Rings, where it's like, you've got humans, and oh my god, if you're not a human, you're you're unique, you're special, your, your race should be your class. You know, <laughs> that type of BS. But I think in the last 20 years of D&D, it's gotten more accepted and more expected that people want to play the unique creatures that can be player characters in games. Mm -hmm. And it is not unheard of nowadays to have a party without any humans in it. And I think having those characters on screen for the movie was like, yes, please. Thank you. (laughs) There's a whole segment or 20 minutes that we do about how that came to be in Dungeons and Dragons, but I don't know that this is the right place to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, um, what is something that you really liked about the movie and how they executed it? Uh, I already talked about the opening sequence. Yes. Here's another thing. Now, I listen to and watch a lot of like YouTube and read a lot of blogs and things like that about breakdowns of movies and things like that. 
there's a channel out there called Screen Crush, and they brought this up in how they potentially purposefully portrayed the main four characters compared to everyone else. So our main four characters are the player characters, and they have the most nuanced dialogues, the most nuanced motivations, and the most nuanced story arcs. Now, let's take this a step back. Let's look at Forge and Sophina. They're pretty one note in how they come off, and maybe that's because they're just NPCs. And they're played like NPCs. And then we get to Zenk. And I love me some Zenk. Don't get me wrong. But he's pretty one note too. And comes off as a badass because he's the GM's player character. (laughs) Now see, I I felt Zenk was more... He was that guy that everybody loves to game with. But he could only be in town for a certain amount of time. So he was the (laughs) guest PC that got to do some really cool crap. Because he couldn't stay for the whole campaign can buy that that interpretation too i I got no problem with that interpretation i just think i think it's funny like well let's the four player characters are going to stand here and watch this guy take out a whole bunch of zents right like i'm like i think i've seen that story in in every like bad game uh gaming thing that i've ever like read about i I, I love i love zenk so much that i don't want to attribute him to a bad gm (laughs) yeah sure i'm I'm with you right like i mean the character is great the storytelling is great but it's one of those one of those moments where you like i can i can see like Here's the thing that maybe you don't want to do in a role-playing game, but it happened in the movie. Everyone else just kind of stood back and watched it. See, the, the problem was is Zenk was, if that was the lesson, Zenk was too cool. Uh-huh. And now GMs would be doing it, and I don't want them to yeah. do that. And don't, Z- don't do that. Zenk also deus ex machina saving Edgin's life from the dragon. <laughs> yes. It was so brilliant, though. It really was. I know. It's a brilliant move thing on screen, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's amazing. <laughs> That's the GM going, oh, crap, I'm going to kill this PC and I don't want to. <laughs> like I said, both both interpretations, I think, are completely valid. I just, but if you think about it like that, then you can understand why, because I'm watching this movie and I'm like, Hugh Grant's a good actor. What's going on here? I don't understand. <laughs> because Forge is just one thing it's in the movie. so shallow. He's so shallow. And there, that's it. Like, there's no, like... There's no reason for him to be shallow. He just is, right? Like, there's there's no backstory to him. We get nothing about his character. We don't know anything about him. We just know that he's common and he's shallow. And then he and then he wants to take the thing away from our main character, one of our main characters that they value the most, which is pretty much what a villain does in every yeah. D&D game. Yeah. <laughs> and Sophina is like, I'm just going to do what I do. And I love Daisy Head, don't get me wrong. She plays the... They both play those characters perfectly when you think of them that way. I will say... Forge explains exactly why he's trying to <laughs> take it away from Edgen, because by keeping Edgen's daughter, it makes him feel powerful because now he has a young life that he is molding and guiding and that feeds his ego. He tells us exactly why he's doing it. Yeah. The first time I, we hear anything about him, though, is at the very end of the movie when he's like, my mother was terrible. To me. And then yes. they just say, oh, we don't want to hear anymore. <laughs> Like what, you, you could have been a PC, but you're not. Or Jonathan. <laughs> what I think is interesting, though, is, and I've noticed this with a lot of like film commentary in the modern era. People get kind of defensive when you talk about a character being one dimensional, but to make a character one dimensional and still engaging in the role that they have in the movie still takes a good actor. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and like, I didn't hate Forge. That's the thing. He is very one dimensional, but I didn't hate him because Hugh Grant does such a good job. Being that one-dimensional jackass that he is. <laughs> he, he earned that potato. <laughs> Let me take a step back from this, too. There, there is nothing wrong with having characters that don't have a lot going on. You need foils, and you need people to 
to not have stories necessarily mm-hmm. because you can't have everybody having a story. Sometimes characters are just secondary characters or tertiary yes. characters that play a role to help other characters progress their story. Like Zenk's role in the movie is to help Edgin move his story along. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, slight divergence here. I would argue, especially given the state of discourse over the character over the years, they gave Thanos too much of a backstory when he should have just been this really nasty, horrible thing that they were all fighting against. And yet people now try and justify what he actually did as if it was anything other than an ego trip of an evil monster. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to tangent too much into the MCU, (laughs) but I'm glad they didn't give Thanos the backstory he has in the comics. Because that would have just been like, wait, he's doing this to impress who? We're going to disagree on that one, Jared. I I won't get into it, but. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I don't want to go too far into it, but I would have almost rather he just worshiped death. But, you know, that's. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I really appreciated about the movie and the way they executed it was the idea of found family and the way an adventuring party can build those bonds to be family to be there for each other and you know the whole end of the movie the very climax of the movie is edgin realizing who and what is truly important in that moment in that situation i mean they have a moment a little earlier where basically the party is almost about to fall apart and then they come back together to basically do the job and that is something i think movies that have tried to emulate D&D or role-playing games in general have not nailed. Mm-hmm. Like, this is one of the problems I had with the original 2000s <laughs> D&D movie, is they did not get the idea of the adventuring party <sighs> at all. You have the main character, a couple of supporting characters that have a little more weight, and then the dwarf. Yeah. And, like, that is not an adventuring party. D&D is supposed to be about the party, the group, and that is something I appreciated them getting right on this. Yes, Edgin is the main character. Yes, Chris Pine is the main character for this, but that didn't mean it felt anything any less like a party or a group endeavor. I mean, that was something that Movies with Mikey thing that I watched pointed out, is that there's multiple times in that 2001 when everybody else just stands back and goes, no, this is your thing to do, main protagonist, and they don't participate in it at all. Yeah. And it's really interesting that the climax of this movie, when they defeat the red wizard is all of them acting together. Mm-hmm. That's on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those are, those are exceptional points, Angie. And you're actually skirting around the, the, the storytelling thing that happens in like 99% of all, all movies that are pulled off. Well, <laughs> which is there are two main characters and, and two characters that have pretty strong arcs in um, Simon and Holga. Like they have pretty strong arcs in the movie. Egan obviously has the strongest one, but like the thing that he wants the entire movie is his wife. But the thing that he needs is to realize that he has his family mm-hmm. and he finally does at the very end. Yeah. And he has to go through this whole thing to get it. The thing that I didn't expect is that one of the other secondary things is like, he needs to stop lying to his friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He wants them to help him get what he wants, but he doesn't realize that the way to get that is to stop lying to them. And when he finally stops lying to them and tells them what he actually did and is honest with himself. He gets them to all join with him, which is not a thing that you see a lot of times, like that, that, that secondary, uh, mm-hmm. like overcoming of a flaw. Usually you just focus on the one, but they did two with him, which was really good. And I've also seen when they try to do that story beat where they overplay, like 
what he did is completely understandable. Sure. With taking the gold and not realizing they were going to trace it back to him. And I've seen when they try to pull off something like that and they make the secret that he's been keeping from them this whole time, this really bad thing. And it's like, no, it doesn't have to be that bad. It just has to be something that he was holding back, which has been driving his entire everything. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I actually really liked how they executed is kind of in the appearance of things because they have very fantasy looking wardrobe, but it is not like they are trying to emulate. This is period specific 1400s era clothing. There are things that are obviously more modern cuts, but they aren't, you know, they still speak to your head like this isn't here and now. This is a different world. But I think that's one of the things even people that I knew growing up would get into and harp on about D&D sometimes where they would be so sure they had to make it seem like this is Earth in the, you know, the 1400s. It's like, it's not. It's a fantasy setting. I would say Doric's outfit was perfect for that because it was definitely, it is far more what I would want my D&D character drawn in yeah. than anything remotely realistic to a medieval setting. And um, one of the other things that goes along with that is Neverwinter you know, the comparison I would make is if you look at Gotham City in the like the original 1989 movie, they didn't take a real city. They built a Gotham City that was supposed to have a certain feel on that soundstage. And that's what they did with Neverwinter. They didn't try and find a city that looks medieval and do that. There might have been some places where they filmed that were like that. But a lot of those locations in Neverwinter were Neverwinter. They were evoking a very specific feel from the setting. All right, what's something you think they could have done better? I got two things. One is, I thought the tabaxi looked terrible. (laughs) I 100% agree with you. I love the Dragonborn. I love the Aarakocra. That tabaxi was like, oh, that's unfortunate. I was really happy to see a tabaxi at all. Yeah, I was too. It didn't look great. (laughs) But at the same time, I was like, okay, I'm glad she doesn't have any speaking parts. (laughs) I want, I want to point out one thing about Zenk in this in this situation too. I love I love this this joke. It's like a meta joke for people that are into storytelling. There's a book out there called Save the Cat, and the idea that the, that the book is built on is that if you want to instantly like a character, you have to have them save a cat or a small child or do something that like is like kind or whatnot. Zenk saves a cat child. <laughs> Come you on, know, man. I was thinking. I was thinking about Save the Cat when you uh-huh. were talking about Edgin's introduction because I'm like. Yeah, that's that his introduction, his backstory <laughs> that they they do is essentially the whole save the cat. It is. thing. And then I did not even think about the fact that Zenk's visual introduction was <laughs> saving the cat child. And then how I've been talking about how they like they double up every time, almost instantly after that, he gives the blind dragonborn some money. Mhm. Mhm. So like that's twice that he does something save the catty. Right off the bat, like, well, we're going to like this guy. He's a good dude. They've talked about him being a good guy, like, multiple times. They've showed him being a good guy. They showed him being a good guy. I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> I hope that people do not take Zenk as a DM NPC and be bad with it. <laughs> but I do hope that people who want to play paladins take the example from Zenk, because he is what I want in a paladin. I want a character that is good but not a stuffy ass. No, oh, he's kind of stuffy. He's very sexy. <laughs> oh, very sexy. I mean, it's you can't not be sexy being played by that actor. The the reason he's not stuffy is because the jokes land so well. Yeah. I find irony is a blade that cuts those who hold <laughs> it the so most. <laughs> I was, was dying so when he said that. 
And he did it with a straight face, and it was I awesome. <laughs> and then, and then, and then Hulk is like, "Oh, you're real fun, aren't you?" I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, like, oh man, I, I, it, it works though. Like, yeah. it's it's great. Like, they made it work so well." One of the great moments is when they're whispering in the Underdark yeah. about Zenk. <laughs> and Zeng is like, the only thing that's up my sleeve is my arm. <laughs> I heard that too. I hate you. And then he smiles. I'm like, yep. All right. He just like lets it all run, run off his shoulders because he's just who he is. Like, he's a great dude. I know we keep drifting into things that we do like. Yes. The second the second thing. Hold on. I got, I got a second thing they wish they had done better. They used the Helm of Disjunction um, and then the Sending Stone still worked. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. They, they were so good for so long Then they did that. I'm like, what are you doing? Was there anything that didn't work for you, And You know, I don't really have any major quibbles at this time. I don't think it was a perfect movie. You know, I don't think that it was like, you know, instant classic or anything like that. But this movie gave me everything I wanted. I'm very happy with it. And there's little things like, yeah, the Tabaxi <laughs> could have been a little, they could have spent a little more money on that, that suit and makeup. I'm mostly happy with it. I mean, I, I'm going to agree with the point <laughs> that you make, Jared. Yeah, I am too. I just didn't want to say it because you had already written it down. Yeah. Most of my points, they aren't like horrible points or things that I think are really bad. It's just things that kind of made me think a little harder than I wanted to. Um, one of them is we are used to seeing hobbits, halflings in the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies being framed in forced perspective. And even though they are supposed to, even in those books, supposed to be like three and a half, whatever feet tall, they end up looking more like four foot, four and a half feet tall because that forced perspective, all you need to know is that they are shorter than the human characters and that the dwarf characters are slightly taller than, than the Hobbit characters. What they did in this movie is literally did what halflings are, which is a 50% scale model of a human being. And it kind of looks weird. <laughs> it does look weird. It does look weird. <laughs> In that instance, you do start thinking they definitely aren't using a great sword. That's <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> it works for some of the scenes that they did. I'm very interested what it would look like if they had someone traveling with the party the whole time yeah. and trying to do action scenes with that same um, aesthetic being used. Well, I'm sure that budgetary reasons, that is probably why there is not a halfling or a dwarf in the party. Yeah. Although they, they did use a dwarf in the... Um, in the, in the arena. arena. In the arena. And I think that came across pretty well. Looked great. Yeah. Um, I kind of wish that Thumberchad had gotten to talk. If there was one D&Dism that I kind of wish general fantasy people were introduced to, it's that most of the time dragons are much smarter than the people around them. <laughs> I had some other quibbles, and Chris and I talked about this off air, about they kind of juggled around where Thumberchad actually lives in the Underdark, which is just me being a pedantic... Uh, idiot it doesn't bother me that much in the movie it's just the thing that you know popped into my head did you did you catch the, how they covered that i know i know they'd mentioned he found a new lair yeah Th zenk says he found a new lair i'm like oh my god i didn't realize it would go that far to, to like explain that he moved from his original home yeah somebody noticed that they did make a change there and they did comment on it so there is that and honestly, that's not a whole lot that I have that I wish they would have done differently. Although, man, did I agree with Chris about that vaccine. I did see some people complaining about the fat phobic jokes related to Thumbershod, but I just couldn't feel that because he was just like a chonky cat to me. <laughs> yeah. He was just a that, chonky I mean, that's, dragon. That's one of those things. Chonky cat. It is hard because. <laughs> it would eat people. Dragons <laughs> maybe 
you know, intelligent creatures, but they're also big cats that can kill yes. you. Yes. <laughs> uh, also, that he they couldn't push it fire off the shelf. A five or a six, six to re- reset his fire breath. That was pretty good too. <laughs> it's funny as hell. <laughs> spark, spark, spark. <laughs> All right. So if this movie gets a sequel, where do you think they'll go from here? If they're going to go trilogy style, the second movie should be the worst possible situation they can be in. I don't know what that is, but that that's what it should be. They've already set up the Wizards of Fae as the big bad. There were hints at whoever Safina was working for. Zaz Tam, man. Shows right up in the movie. That is a well-known nasty villain from the realms, too. Oh, can I just say for a moment how much I loved Doric going to town on Safina in owlbear form? I'm just like... This this was this was my Hulk and Loki moment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally an homage to that for sure. Yes, I'm just like I love that. Um, but obviously, I think they will do more if they make a sequel. I think there will be more going on with the Red Wizards of Thay. I mean, I have hopes. Like, I'd love to see Waterdeep. Give me, give me Waterdeep. I also understand if they don't do that because there there's a lot to do in the realms. I would hope that in a second movie, they'd also start giving more to some of the other characters. Give me more of Simon and Doric. Bring back Zenk. (laughs) Find a reason for him to be part of the party more. I know Chris Pine is the star, and I know that Michelle Rodriguez is is like the co-star, but their stories are kind of over. Like, their stuff has been resolved. So if you want to go into another story, like, I think it needs to be Doric or Zenk or Simon that is the the focus character mm-hmm. the the only the and my hesitation on that is not the logic of that point it's more the concerns of studio direction and a lot of times with a series like this when you have an ensemble cast if they decide that certain actors need to be the focus they will make the story the focus on them even if it should be on other characters because they think that that's where the money is. I, I completely agree with you, Chris. I hope that if they do a second movie, that the focus is on some of the other characters. Let's see more of Simon and Doric. But at the same time, my worry is, is that the studio might be like, no, 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 no. Chris Pine's where the money at. We can't, we can't get Chris Pine back if we don't make him <laughs> the star. You know, like, I don't know that, I don't know that Chris Pine is like that, but. There you go. He seemed like every interview that I've seen him do about this movie, though, he was so into this project. This wasn't just like a thing he did because someone waved money at him. He also got paid $11 million to do it. So let's not. Yeah. No, no. I get that. But I have also seen actors that get paid more money than they've gotten paid for any other movie they've done and still kind of phoned it in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 100% agree. He was great. Don't, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I still think he's in the cast, right? Like, and I hope that he is okay enough with being being more of the secondary character that has some story going on. Cause it can, there can be a story with him and his daughter, right? Like that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Considering he's the supporting character in both of the wonder woman movies. I don't think he has a problem with no. that. Sure. Yeah. And M- Michelle Rodriguez's character, Holga still got stuff with the elk tribe. Like she could go yeah. back yes. to the elk tribe at some point, but I, I really think that if the Zents, not the Zents, yeah. wrong, wrong group, my bad. If the red <laughs> wizards of Thay are the primary villain, like Zenk needs to come back and, matter in yes. some yeah. way shape or form and really find out more about him because he's a revenant in some way shape or yeah. form. he's got an extended life for being a human 
Yeah, yeah, they showed he's he wasn't unaffected by that spell. He just didn't mm-hmm. turn undead, or at least not the same way everyone else did. Right. So my hope for a sequel is that they broaden their uh, tour of the realms. I'd like to see more places, like Ange said. I'd love to see Waterdeep. I'd love to see just about anywhere else. I have a soft spot for Candlekeep. I would love them to have to go to Candlekeep to research something. I would like to see more factions get involved. I think they did a really good job of introducing like the Harpers and the Red Wizards, but I would love to see like the Zentarum or some other organizations get involved. They name-dropped the Cult of the Dragon, so I would love to see the Cult of the Dragon come up again, and I would really love to see a Dracolich on screen. If, if they go to Waterdeep, <laughs> I want Xanathar. I want oh, yeah. Xanathar and his fish. I don't think there's any way they would use Waterdeep and not find a way to work Xanathar into uh, <laughs> into the storyline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's basically my thought process. And I'm also wondering, I think Zenk has been such a big part of this that I would work him in as a regular member of the group. But I could also see them doing the whole core team plus a guest star thing, too, and rotate in someone else that is just like this very charismatic singular character that comes out of nowhere that interacts with them as well so there's a lot they can do yet so what dnd isms do you think they avoided and do you think they did it on purpose there's no evil orcs mm-hmm. they, they did that on purpose because that's a problem mm-hmm. that's it that's all i got i mean i'll be completely honest i saw the movie two days ago i don't know that i've had time to think about the dnd isms they avoided i mean they definitely played fast and loose with some of the abilities and some of the spells, I know there are grognards out there <laughs> screaming, that's not how wild shape works. Or like, what level is he that, you know, his wild, his wild magic triggers a reverse gravity. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I was, I was pretty happy. I was pretty happy with, with it. And I don't know that there was anything I feel like they specifically avoided. Okay. Here, here's something. One of the things I noticed is there were a lot of situations they were in that in a actual D&D game would have meant combat. The intellect of ours, that would have been a fight. In a, in a traditional D&D game, that would have been a fight. But I liked that they just gonna let them pass and try not to wait a second. They're walking by. That's kind of insulting. <laughs> that was funny. I actually like that joke. That was good. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you. They save the fights for big moments and not maybe as often as you would see in a regular D&D game. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think I actually appreciated that in this movie. Basically, the thing that I was going to say is it dovetails with what Chris was saying. But I think there is an overall trend that they did with this that is very good. And that is they have a hobgoblin show up and he's a criminal. But because we see so many people of so many other species in every scene, this doesn't seem weird. It's not like, here is this person, and he is different than all the rest of us, and he is bad. It is, there are lots of different people in every group, and some of them are criminals, and some of them are in the government, and some of them are, you know... And I think just the fact that the other species were so ubiquitous starts to diffuse that idea that any one of them only performs a certain function in the setting. So is there any D&Dism that you think they'll continue to avoid? The evil orc trope. They're just going to stay away from it. It's It's got bad juju surrounding it, so there's no way they're going to go there. Yeah. There's nothing to be gained by going that way. I mean, I would hope that they, they avoid species as evil type of thing. I, I've never mm. liked that in D&D anyway. Well, you better hope they leave the drow out of it then. So one of my brother's hopes is that there would have been a Dritz cameo. He, he really wanted to have a Dritz cameo. 
I would not mind seeing a prestige series or something that touches on Dritz and the Icewind Dale books and that group of characters. But I would hope if they do introduce the drow, it's done carefully in that it's more that this is the society and that this is not necessarily the people. Basically, you know, my whole D&Dism that I was going to bring up was drow too, is I think that is something that they are going to have to walk on eggshells with, and I think they are walking on eggshells because there are a lot of people for whom Forgotten Realms equals drow storylines, and they are probably shocked that they didn't even go anywhere near that in this. There's plenty of room to tell stories that don't have to do with drow, but I am sure that there are people that expected it. This is something that those people may not think about, is if the drow are presented, as, as Chris said, we better hope they don't do this, because if the drow are presented with the slightest, slightest stumble, the people who are not gamers, who do not know D&D, are going to be like, WTF? What are you doing, folks? Because that's not cool. And there are multiple vectors that they have to think very carefully about drow, from how they visually look to how they present their society. Yes. There's just a lot. And I am certain there are people at the studio and as their liaison between Hasbro and Wizards that are all talking about these things, but I don't think you're going to see them dive straight into Menzo Branson and this entire city of evil drow right off the bat the first time you run into drow. In fact, I would be shocked if your first drow aren't going to be like a paladin of Illustre or something more in that vein than anything else. Well, if they're going to do that, they should just roll out Drist. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you run into the issue of there's going to be purists who aren't happy that they deviate from the books as written, but those stories could make some great movies or great shows. So I would not be upset at an Icewind Dale series that gives us Drist and Cadibree and Brunor. Do you think they'll branch out to other settings in the future? Yeah, but Jared's going to say it, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> what about you, Ange? I mean, you're you're going to say it. <laughs> I would love to see someday an Eberron thing. I don't think Eberron is there yet. I think things are going to stay in Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance. Because I believe I just saw an announcement that Joe Mangianello has gotten... Like, it's more than just the rumors. There was something more official about him moving forward. It is, but it's weird. It is a weird comment because there's a D&D show in the works at Paramount Plus. We don't know what it is. But during the uh, D&D Direct, Joe Manganiello mentioned that he is working very hard to bring a live-action Dragonlance show to the public. He did not say it was greenlit. He did not say when it was coming. He did not say it was official, and it felt very strange the way he phrased it in that, because to say it in an official thing feels like he's saying it will happen, but he also was very careful to say that it is, he is still working to bring it to the public. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> we know Joe Manganiello has some pull, and we know there's going to be a TV series. I don't know if these two things are connected. I do think Dragonlance would be a good separate thing to do as long as you can make it very clear that yes this is D, but this is not happening in the same world as this movie did yeah i don't think um they're going to have these characters cross over into any other settings they're going to keep grand and eberron as separate properties i would not be shocked to see them introduce spelljammer or planescape elements into the series though yeah 
I could definitely see the group like doing the bewildering showing up in the uh, city of Sigil, you know, and just seeing the the weird landscape of the, you know, the toroidal city and things like that happening. That'd be fun if they had to go there to get a MacGuffin. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked by that. I, I also I wouldn't mind seeing them doing some some swashbuckling on a spelljammer, but I don't think they're going to use that as a transition to another setting. I think it would just be spelljammer being its own thing that is tied to the storyline that they're still doing here. I mean, they just got so much they could do in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, one thing I want to see in, in a future D&D property I want to see an actual rogue. <laughs> no offense to Forge Fitzwilliam, but he didn't get to backstab anybody. Give me, give me somebody who's death on wheels. Well, he did backstab people, just not with a with a weapon. Okay, I want to see somebody who is very obviously the DPS of the party. Okay, <laughs> that was the druid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Before we wrap up, though, I did want to slide this one thing in because I have not seen anyone mention this anywhere. Elminster. Yeah, yeah, that kind of slid past a lot of people. Elminster was great. Loved it. Yeah, I I think a lot of people aren't realizing that that was Elminster. <laughs> yeah, he was there. It was cool. I liked it. It was very cool. It was very perfect. I loved that scene between him and Simon. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think a lot of people realize that that was Elminster. No, there's two things, though, between the last name and the fact that literally he has Elminster's sigil on the front of his robes there. Like, that's who that was. <laughs> I thought that was pretty neat. I, I did, too. I thought the guy who played him was pretty good, too. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see him in the future. Yeah. It is very much what I would hope out of a movie, Elminster, because they managed to make it a very interesting wizardly character without making it feel like they're just, like, cut and pasting Gandalf into something. Yeah. I like that Simon said, your time has passed. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's still around somewhere. Uh, the guy doesn't die. He's just out there. But I do like the idea that maybe people don't know for sure that yeah. he's still alive, at least, you know, common, regular people. Oh, man, that would be fun. <laughs> so, like, the second D&D movie, if we get another one, they go to Elminster's Tower in Shadowdale. That'd be cool. I'd be in for that. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Moving on into downtime research, every episode we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to our listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. This isn't specifically Dungeons & Dragons. It's just, it's just YouTube RPG-ness, right? So Sean P. Kelly from Gaming <laughs> MBS, he's got a YouTube channel called How to RPG, and he has his live streams on Saturday mornings. They run from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern, and I'm always there lately, and it's a ton of fun. They go through the news a lot of the times, and there's tons of D&D stuff or D&D-related stuff in there. There's a lot of RPG conversations, and the chat is just a blast. Yeah, it's too early in the morning for me, but I've, I've definitely, like, I want to support anything Sean does. Ange, what about you? Go see the movie! That is D&D. First of all, if you have made it to this point in the episode, and you have not seen the movie, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Things we didn't mention, Big B's Rocky or Fleshy Hand. Uh, Luke's Resilient Sphere. Go see it. It's it's fun. It's good if you like D&D even remotely. And if you don't, why are you listening to us? I love you, but go go see the movie. <laughs> Three scorching rays were shot in that fight. Meteor Swarm. Meteor Swarm was like right <laughs> off the bat. We're just throwing out spells now. There were spells. But they were so obviously spells. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I my recommendation is going to be, well, first off, 
capitalism is evil and yet somehow produces adorable things. And while this is massively outweighed by an oppressive system, hey, why not drown your financial dread by spending money on your very own Thimberchod plush dragon from Kid Robot? Then you can be afeared by your <laughs> plushy dragon. I want it. <laughs> In addition to plushies from the D&D movie, they also have some general D&D plushies and some critical role characters from Campaign 3 now. I bought my granddaughter the Tiamat plushie for her birthday, and she absolutely loves it. So you should check this out. We will have a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, it's so cute. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We're happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out Pandas Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Sunda every Wednesday. Believe me, it's worth it. They are ridiculous. (laughs) Answering listener (laughs) questions about playing, running, and designing tabletop role-playing games. You might as well get cozy because they do in their panda hoodies as they lounge around on their bamboo seats and drink bamboo shakes in their bamboo lounge and talk about some games. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure. 